Father, we thank you today for yet another opportunity to study your word. We pray for the timely grace that's needed at this time, and what we need is the grace of concentration, which is only supplied by you in the Holy Spirit. So we pray that you'll open the eyes of our heart, the eyes of our understanding, that we may have true insights, insights which yield to momentum for forward progress onto the mark of the prize of the heavenly calling of God in Christ Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen. This is Hebrews 2020. We see Jesus. It's increment 104. And I'm going to call it Hologos Tutheu, the Word of God, part four. And there is an element of the Word of God, the general Word of God, called Lagu, L O G O U, Dikaiosune. D-I-K-A-I-O-S-U-N-E, long E, Dikaiosune, Lagu, Dikaiosune. It's an element of Hologos Tutha'u, the Word of God in Hebrews 4.12, and the Word of Righteousness in Hebrews 5.13. Both of these will come into play in our increment, which we call Increment 104, another tiny contribution to the exegetical treatment of Hebrews, the theological exegesis of this heavenly homily. When we were kids, my dad and mom and sisters and I would go for a week in the summer to York Beach in Maine. And one of the highlights of our trips there, besides time on Short Sands Beach in the frigid waters there, was going to a place called the Goldenrod to watch saltwater taffy being made. And we'd gaze with fascination either through their large picture window or from inside where there was a store and a little restaurant, I believe it's still there, as a machine with several rotating stainless steel arms would stretch a massive mass of saltwater taffy. And then they would hit it with a dusting of flour and put it through a mechanical process where it was finally pulled into what looked like a long hose and then cut and wrapped into a variety of delectable treats, then boxed up. Now, with each rotation of the mass of taffy, you feared that the precious product would fall and hit the floor. But in the nick of time, every time, another arm came around and pulled up the taffy and rescued it from hitting the floor. And this went on and on and over and over again. And without fail and infallibly, that mechanical arm would come around and pick up the lagging taffy. Now, I liken this nostalgic memory to Jeremiah's visit to the potter's shed in Jeremiah 18. It's always profitable to read that passage and to make applications as the Holy Spirit directs you. 
the Lord had Jeremiah go down to the potter's shed and watch him build a vessel of clay on the wheel. And he did so. And he watched the potter build up that vessel as the wheel spun, only to have the product fail and become flawed. The potter didn't give up, though. He made the same fallen clay into another vase, another vessel. Reminds me of what 2 Timothy 2.22 talks about, honorable vessels for use in the house of God. Now, this illustrated to the reader the purpose of God, and this certainly illustrated to the prophet Jeremiah the purpose of God not only to restore the fallen and flawed nation of Israel, but also to restore all things, including all of humankind, who became flawed in the man of clay named Adam, the first man, Adam. So even this little trip to the potter's shed makes us think of the restoration of all things, the justification or rectification and reconciliation of all of humankind through the act of Christ Jesus. I'm applying this in a pastoral sense. We mustn't let, let the precious truth hit the floor that is spoken of in Hebrews 4.2. Good news, it says, had been proclaimed to the desert generation. The PT said good news was preached to them, and it literally means the gospel was preached to them, even as it has been to us. The verb that's deployed in Hebrews 4.2 is euangelizo, and it means literally to preach good news or to preach the gospel. The Greek is E-U-A-G-G-E-L-I-Z omega O. U angelizo. And it again, Uangalizo means to preach the gospel or to preach good news in general. And this reveals yet another association of the Hebrews homily with Paul's epistle to the Romans. I've made a point in this commentary to say over and over again that we came to Hebrews via Romans. And it's important that we studied Romans first, at least in our case. Reading Romans with the light on is an apt introduction and an apt preparation and anticipation of the homily to the Hebrews. For the very theme verses of that epistle, Romans 1, 16 and 17, have to do with the gospel, where it's called the power of salvation to anyone who believes. The gospel is itself an announcement of salvation. Salvation accomplished in the past, Salvation completed in an eschatological future. That which Hebrews 2.3 calls 
such a great salvation. It must not be neglected in attention to the word of God, especially the word of righteousness, as it's called in Hebrews 5.13. And that's probably one of the biggest problems in the church today, unskilled in the word of righteousness, not skilled in the word of righteousness. Preachers aren't, evangelists aren't, teachers aren't, worldwide famous evangelists aren't skilled in this word of righteousness. And so, to me, this is a large mass of taffy that the mechanical arm needs to lift up and rescue lest it hits the floor, and lest we forget, lest we let it slip. Because this truth that we developed in Romans and that Paul the Apostle developed in Romans is essential to the understanding of Hebrews. The gospel that Paul had proclaimed in a geographical arc from Jerusalem to Croatia, modern Croatia, called Illyricum in those days, which is a place where a place called Dalmatia was found, where Titus went in 2 Timothy 4.2. So it was an arc from Jerusalem to Croatia. Paul preached the gospel And when he wrote to Rome, he intended, he said, to preach the gospel to the saints in Rome. Now, these people were already called saints. He made it very clear to them that they belonged to Jesus Christ in Romans 1.6, that they were saints. So that Paul wanted to preach the gospel there implies that there's much more to the gospel than the initial historical facts on which it is based. Now in Isaiah 52.7, quoted in Romans 10.15, the gospel is described generally as news about good things, agatha, A-G-A-T-H-A. These good things, agatha, A-G, A-T-H-A, Agatha, as in Agatha Christie, Good Things in Christ, an excellent author, incidentally. These good things include things that have happened, things that have happened, things that have been accomplished, such as a military victory and the announcement of that victory yielding to peace. It also includes the news of good things to come, announcement of something that's to come and that's certain to come. The gospel includes both the good news of things that have happened, producing peace, and things to come, producing eschatological renewal. The good things that have happened have to do with Jesus our Lord, who died for our sins according to the scriptures. 1 Corinthians 15.3. That's the primary fact of the gospel. He was buried, again, according to the scriptures, for it says that he was buried in a rich man's tomb in Isaiah 53. And on the third day, he was raised from the dead, again, according to the scriptures. 
Scriptures like Psalm 16, in which it says his flesh did not see corruption. Passages like Hosea 6.2, in which it talks about Israel being renewed on the third day, or after two days. These are the bare prophetic historical facts of the gospel, 1 Corinthians 15.3-4. But they aren't the only facts that constitute that which is called the gospel of Christ. In Romans 15, 19. As Hebrews shows us, the same Christ, the same Jesus, who in fulfillment of the scriptures died for our sins, was buried, and arose from the dead the third day, also having made purification for sins in Hebrews 1, 3, was led up from the dead by the God of peace in Hebrews 13.20 and then exalted to sit enthroned and crowned at the right side of the eternal heavenly majesty of God his Father in the most elevated heights of the heavens. So high, in fact, was that elevation that in Ephesians Paul wrote that it was above the heavens I think there's a reference here to the heavens being the outer and middle court of a heavenly tabernacle and above the heavens being the utmost holiness of the holy of holies beyond the veil. And we're going to be speaking much about that veil. That's where Jesus has entered for us already as our forerunner. The veil has been torn. The veil is his flesh. The veil torn in his death. And he has passed through that veil into the place of utmost holiness above the heavens, Ephesians 1.21. From that region of utmost holiness, called the Holy of Holies in the heavenly tabernacle, beyond the veil, Hebrews 6.20, that separates the heavens from the region above the heavens, Jesus ever lives or lives in an incorruptible life, in an imperishable body, to intercede for those whom he saves. He does so in order to save them, that is, us, to the uttermost, which implies bring us into the utmost holiness of the heavenly holy of holies, in a total sanctification of spirit and soul, but also of body. And so he's talking about the utmost degree of salvation, which is our glorification, which in practical terms is the possession of a body of glory, a body rendered immortal, made incorruptible, called a spiritual body in 1 Corinthians 15.44, called the body of glory in Philippians 3.21. As Paul expressed the efficacious wish, may you be sanctified, spirit, soul, and body, faithful, faithful, faithful is he who called you, that is with a heavenly calling, who also will do it. That's 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. He whom God has made to be holiness for us, that's Christ, 1 Corinthians 1.30, saves us to the extent of ultimate sanctification, body, soul, and spirit.
which can also be perceived as life in the room of utmost holiness. This truth, introduced briefly by Paul the Apostle in Romans 8.34, is amplified and expounded by the anonymous PT through all of Hebrews. And I think that's very important. We came to Hebrews through Romans, specifically through Romans 8.34, where it talks about Jesus Christ as the one who died, God as the one who justifies, and then it says Christ who died, and even more so, was raised from the dead and makes intercession for us at the right hand of God. So that Romans 8.34 is the gateway to Hebrews, where it's amplified and expounded by the anonymous PT. Paul does not identify Jesus as an intercessor, intercessor called a priest specifically. The Hebrews author does. In fact, he makes a whole lot of the doctrine of Jesus Christ as the priest who is like Melchizedek of the Old Testament. In fact, the whole section, central section, and heart of Hebrews is about Jesus Christ as that great archpriest. One can imagine that if some of these people were tempted to go back to temple sacrifices after the one-time sacrifice of Christ, that they would have to once a year go to the high priest who would approach the Holy of Holies with their sacrifices, with the blood of their sacrifices, and for them to do this knowing and being reminded that they have a great high priest who entered into the heavenly holy of holies by his own blood, well, that should bring at least some shame to them and perhaps initiate repentance for them to go back and honor the one-time and forever sacrifice of Jesus Christ instead of entering into the redundancy of abrogated ritual in order to please their social peers and religious contemporaries as well as avoid persecution from the political adversaries of the church. There's going to be a lot of temptation in the United States of America for church people and Christians so-called to back off their profession of Jesus Christ, especially the proclamation of him being the exclusive Savior. There's going to be a lot of pressure to back off from that if trends continue in the tyrannical fashion that they are now, where even to the point where a reality czar is being appointed to make sure everybody not only acts right, but thinks right and talks right. So we're entering into a stage of history where it's going to take some perseverance and some faithfulness on the part of God's people that can only be empowered and enabled by God the Holy Spirit and by a powerful, relevant, and living ministry of the Word. Now, he whom God has made to be holiness for us saves us to the extent of ultimate sanctification. This truth, again, introduced by Paul the Apostle in Romans 8.34, 
is amplified and expounded by the anonymous PT throughout all of the heavenly homily we call Hebrews, especially in its central section having to do with the arch-priesthood of Jesus. A theme made explicit first in Hebrews 2.17 and 18, and then picked up again before it hits the floor, as it were, in Hebrews 4, 14. There it says, Jesus, the Son of God, has passed through the heavens. Instead of the old Levitical priests passing through the outer and middle and inner court into the holiest place of all, Jesus passed through the heavens through the veil, into the holiest place of all, having obtained eternal redemption by his own blood, not the blood of lambs or rams or bullocks. So the theme is picked up again, as we're going to see very soon in Hebrews 4.14, from which that invaluable truth of the great high priesthood of Jesus Christ is expanded through 5.10 of Hebrews. I'm giving you an idea here of the structure. From 5.11 to 6.20, things are going to get a little rough because another arm comes around to lift the readers of Hebrews up from a snare of spiritual lethargy into which some of them had fallen, 5.11 to 13. So Hebrews 5, 11 to 20, and that whole section has to be understood as an interlude by the PT in order to interpret difficult passages like Hebrews 6, 4 through 8, which idiotic preachers tell Christians that means they can lose their salvation. Hebrews 5, 11 to 6, 20 is a section within itself and that's where our analogy comes in handy because that's when a mechanical arm comes around and lifts believers that are, intent, that are possibly going to hit the floor, as it is, and apostatize. So from 5.11 to 6.20, we have this arm coming around to lift the readers from a state and a snare of spiritual lethargy into which some of them had fallen. So Hebrews chapter 5, all the way from 11, 511 through 620, is a crucial interlude in the progress of the homily. For it equips the readers to be ready to grasp and assimilate the momentous and momentum-creating insight by which Jesus is seen, we see Jesus, seen as both the great king of the heavenly Jerusalem, which is called the city of the great king, and at the same time a great archpriest like Melchizedek. In Hebrews 5, 6, 5, 10, 6, 20, Hebrews 7, 1. 7.10, 7.11, 7.15, and 17, and then understood from 8.1 all the way through 13. We're dealing with Jesus Christ as our great high priest. He's crowned with glory, and the glory with which he's crowned is that of a king, 
the great king. And honor, he's also crowned with honor. The honor with which we see him crowned is an honor that he did not take to himself. It's the honor of being a great archpriest, Hebrews 5.4. And that goes back, of course, to Hebrews 2.9, which goes back to Psalm 8.4 through 6, Septuagint 8.5-7. Now, we came to Hebrews via Romans. Romans' thesis verse is Romans 1, 16 and 17. That's, those two verses become the thesis for all of Romans. In Romans 1, 17, and here's where we have the connection between the righteousness of God in the gospel and the word of righteousness in Ephesians, or rather Hebrews 5, 13. In Romans 1, 17, Paul taught that in the gospel, quote, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. That's how most translations read it. But the translation of Romans 1.16 to 17 that we developed in reading Romans with the light on, a series that we did on the Epistle of Paul to the Romans, it goes like this, Romans 1.16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes for the Jew first and also the Greek. I say not ashamed because by it, that is the gospel, the righteousness of God is apocalypsed, that is shockingly disclosed, from faithfulness to faithfulness. Not just faith to faith, faithfulness to faithfulness, as it is written, the righteous one, and that's Jesus Christ himself, will live from or because of faithfulness. That, of course, is the quote of Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4, at least the allusion to it. Habakkuk 2.4 is also alluded to in Hebrews, Hebrews 10.38. We'll be getting to that down the road, too. The gospel which reveals the righteousness of God is parallel to the word of righteousness, lagu dikaiosunes, in Hebrews 5.13. So, note the connection between Romans 1.17 and Hebrews 5.13, the gospel in which the righteousness of God is revealed and what it means to be skillful in the word of righteousness in Hebrews 5.13. And the Hebrew listeners had begun to lose that skill. That skill was in danger of hitting the floor. The readers were becoming inexperienced in the word of righteousness. Now, it's possible to be experienced in something and then after a long lag time to lose your skill in such a thing and have to kind of relearn it. The PT is saying this, it's going to be hard to say all the things I have to say about Jesus being an archpriest like Melchizedek. If you guys don't get the word of righteousness, if you're not experienced in, skillful in, the word of righteousness, what it means. And so that's like yours truly, this PT, 
saying Hebrews is going to be hard to teach, especially its central section, if you don't get Romans, especially where we hopefully became experienced in the word of righteousness. The word of righteousness, again, that's our title for today, Lagu Dikaiosune, which is part of a series called Hologos Tutheu, part four. The word of righteousness is a prime element in the general word of God. We learn throughout our reading of Romans that what is at issue in the gospel is the righteousness of God. We discovered and demonstrated that the righteousness of God is his act and action of salvation. Paul deals with righteousness not only as an attribute of God, along with justice, but as an action of God, the act of God. When we say that Jesus is one with his Father, we mean he is one in terms of being, one being, one in terms of substance or essence, one essence, one in terms of name, Yahweh. There he's called Yahweh as the Father is called Yahweh, as the Spirit is called Yahweh, and one in act. And the act there, for example, is no one takes them out of my father's hand. No one takes them out of my hand. I and the father are one, meaning we are one in the act of salvation of the sheep. And so we say being, essence, name, and act. Being, essence, name, and act. They are not one in person, however, because the father and the son are two distinct persons as the Spirit is a distinct person within the triune God. And so it's right what Athanasian said, Athanasian principle developed by Athanasius said this, God the Father is all that the Son is, except he's not the Son. God the Son is all that the Father is, except he's not the Father. And so when Jesus said, the Father and I are one, I and the Father are one, in John 10.30, he means one in essence, being, name, and act or action. That action being love, as well as an attribute being love. He does not mean we are one and the same person, for they are two distinct persons. That's why we're doing, again, we also came to Hebrews via a series called Doing and Living Theology, in which we tackled some of these things. The pastor teacher of our time and the time coming must be a pastor theologian to be worth his salt in the kingdom of God and to impart the necessary momentum to the people of God to not only survive but thrive in their spiritual lives in the upcoming events of history, in the upcoming current of history. And God needs to raise up teachers. The word of righteousness, and he will raise up teachers. If you find yourself teaching everywhere you go, maybe he's going to have a congregation for you. The word of righteousness is a prime element of the word of God. We discovered again that the righteousness is his act and his action of salvation. 
what God has done in Jesus. And it includes what he continues to do in the Holy Spirit for all his people. And in fact, ultimately for all of creation. We're going to learn that in Hebrews 4.13. Faith to faith, therefore, in Romans 1.17 means God's own faithfulness, which Jesus participated in, and then God's faithfulness being Jesus' own faithfulness as the immediate cause of our so great salvation. God the Father's faithfulness is what the old-timers used to call the proximate cause of eternal salvation. Jesus' faithfulness and his obedience to the extent of death by the cross, the death of the cross, was the immediate cause of salvation. Our faith isn't either immediate or proximate cause of our salvation. It isn't even the remote cause of our salvation, as we're going to see. So faith to faith means God's own faithfulness, which Jesus participated in, and Jesus' own faithfulness as the immediate cause of our so great salvation. Jesus' faithful obedience to the Father's universally saving will led to the justification of all humanity in all of its times, Romans 5.18, and will yet yield a new creation in which not only all of humanity, but all of creation will be transformed, liberated, glorified, and made new for eternal life. Now, that's a major rescue mission. We learned that God, God's faithfulness is the proximate cause and Jesus' faithfulness the immediate cause of salvation. We also learned that the salvation is ultimately universal. That's good news. That's the gospel which we have heard. The gospel doesn't contain the bad news of an eternal hell for disobedient or misbehaving people and angels. That's not good news. In fact, that's such terrible news that people get suicidal over it sometimes. Jesus' faithful obedience to the Father's universally saving will will lead to the transformation of all creation. All creation's waiting for it, says Romans 8, 19 to 23, and they don't even, there are people waiting for it that don't even know what they're waiting for in Hebrews 9.28. We learned that God's faithfulness, I'll say that again, is the proximate cause and Jesus' faithfulness the immediate cause of salvation. We're not skilled in the word of righteousness if we don't know that justification came by Jesus Christ's faithfulness, not our faith. And so... I'm doing that now to pull us up on this truth, to remind us of this truth, because if we don't become skilled in the word of righteousness in Romans 1.17 and Hebrews 5.13, we're not going to get the doctrine that's coming up about Jesus Christ as our great archpriest. We learn that individual human faith 
is neither the immediate nor the proximate nor even the remote cause for a person's justification in God's sight. In God, it's God's faithfulness participated in by Jesus and Jesus' faithful obedience to the Father's saving and justifying will that resulted in the justification and giving of life to all of humanity, Romans 5.18, 1 Corinthians 15.22. Again, we learned that God's righteousness is what God has done. It says that explicitly in Psalm 22.31, by the way, and that's the Septuagint of Psalm 21.32. God's righteousness is what God has done and is doing regarding our salvation. Salvation is of the Lord, says Psalm 3.8. Jonah knew it in the belly of a sea creature. He knew he couldn't save himself. He said salvation is of the Lord in Jonah 2.9. We stand fast and watch the salvation of the Lord, says Exodus 14.13. That's what Moses told the people. You can't split this Red Sea, so stand back and watch God do it. Watch God perform a deliverance of heaping the waters up on the left and the right so two and a half to three million and we can prove that's the number people can be delivered out of Egypt's slavery across the Red Sea on dry land you think you could do that well that's what salvation is it's something God does while we stand back stand fast and watch so put Exodus 14.13 together with Psalm 3.8 and you'll have quite a doctrine. Our faith, we do have faith. We are given faith. Our faith is evoked or ignited by the Holy Spirit in whom we may walk. We walk in the Spirit, Romans 8.4, Galatians 5.16. And by so doing, we walk by faith and not by sight in 2 Corinthians 5.7. So by faith in the gospel both in the things that have happened in God's grace and things that will yet be, we benefit immensely for sure. But our personal faith didn't justify us. Jesus Christ's faithfulness justified us. As Psalm 143.2, 142LXX says, no flesh, no living being will ever be justified in God's sight. No matter what you do, what you believe, or how you act, we can't be justified in God's sight if we're living. So what? So we died with Christ. We died with Christ. Our justification is because we died with him. So we could say no one living can be justified, but everybody who died is if they died in Christ. And when Christ died, all died. When one died, all died. And so all were justified in the one who died. God justifies, Romans 8.33. Christ is the one that died. God is the one that justifies all on his behalf. And as many as he justifies, he glorifies. In the future, we can be sure that all of humanity in all of its times and all of creation through all of history will be glorified in what we call future world. That's what Hebrews calls future world. And so it's God's faithfulness participated in by Jesus and Jesus' faithful obedience that brings justification to all humanity.
by faith, when the Holy Spirit ignites it in us, we don't become justified, but by faith we come to understand the justification that we have by Jesus' faithfulness. What are we doing here? We're learning to be skilled in the word of righteousness. And so, by faith, and by his faithfulness and participation in it, and by our participation in his perseverance, we flourish in the spiritual life. We come to understand the justification that we have by Jesus' faithfulness and by his perseverance through the ordeal called the death of the cross, Hebrews 12.2, Hebrews 2.9, Philippians 2.8, Romans 5.19, 5.18 and 19, and Hebrews 5.8 for that matter. By faith we experience the peace that goes along with ceasing from any works that we used to think would justify us in God's eyes. In Romans, those works are called the works of the law, Romans 3.20. Paul said, so by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. In Hebrews, actions called dead works in Hebrews 6.2 and Hebrews 9.14, include the performance of rituals and sacrifices and offerings, which not only could never take away sins, but which in the view of this pastor teacher, and evidently the Holy Spirit, those deeds had actually become sinful in Hebrews 10.26, especially in view of the one and for all, the once and for all, and never to be repeated sacrifice of Christ who put away sin by the offering of himself once and for all at the junction of the ages, Hebrews 9.26. So no matter for what reason or what rationale these believers were going to go offer temple sacrifices again and give them to the Levitical high priest to offer once a year, whatever their rationale was, whether to save them from Roman persecution or whether they thought it was necessary, it's not necessary because of the one-time sacrifice of Christ. And so, as Paul showed in Romans, by the works of the law, no human being will ever be justified in Romans 3.20. We are justified by the work of another, the finished work of Jesus on the cross. This is the redemption, says Romans 3.24 and Hebrews 9.12, that is in and by Christ Jesus and that was obtained by his own blood as priest and lamb, sacrificer and sacrifice. So we're justified by grace on that basis, by grace on the immediate basis of the faithfulness of Jesus and the proximate faithfulness of God. Paul also showed that by no human effort could anyone be sanctified, only by the Holy Spirit. And he goes from Romans 6.1 all the way through Romans 8.16, and then again in 8.26 and 27 to prove that. We're not justified by our personal faith, but by Jesus' faithfulness. What are we doing? We're becoming skilled in the word of righteousness. 
But when we believe the gospel, including that aspect of the gospel called Romans 16, 25, and 26, the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of a mystery or the mystery, we benefit immensely. That's why Paul, he didn't want to just go to Rome and say, Jesus died for your sins, was buried and rose from the dead. They already knew that. They were already saints. They already belonged to Christ. What he wanted to proclaim was the gospel of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of a mystery, that mystery being the ultimate summation of all things in all creation over all time in Christ Jesus. That's what needs to be expounded upon today in the church in the United States of America and across the world. Romans 16, 25 to 27, Ephesians 1, 10, Colossians 1, 20, Acts 3, 21, Matthew 19, 28, and a lot of other places need to be expounded. Or Christians aren't going to have the strength to thrive or even to survive in upcoming persecutions. Now, if they come, if they come. Now, God can pull up history like the man in the window pulled up the taffy in the goldenrod if he wants to, before that happens, that's my prayer that he will. But it's dependent largely on people's response to the teaching of the Word of God and to the accurate communication of the Word of God by those who are in pulpits. Now, by believing, some were tempted to think that believing has nothing to do with anything and that it's not valuable. Believing is intensely invalu invaluable, in fact, though it doesn't result in our justification. By believing, on the other hand, we enter into what Hebrews calls rest. Rest that's associated with an eschatological Sabbath. By believing, we experience that which Romans calls the kingdom of God in Romans 14:17 along with its attendant joy and peace in Romans 15:13 Paul even defined the kingdom of God gave a definition to it as the Hebrew writer defined faith as the substance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not yet seen the assurance of things not yet seen Paul defined the kingdom of God as righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So when you put Romans 15, 13 together with Romans 14, 17, you realize that by believing, we actually experience the kingdom of God, which is righteousness, God's action of salvation, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Something's happening here. Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit constitutes the kingdom of God in the present because righteousness is the saving action and activity of God and peace and joy are results of this saving action. We can say that the kingdom of God is essentially equivalent with the great salvation that the PT speaks of thematically in Hebrews. Now the Holy Spirit will show this through this PT, through this pastor teacher, the Holy Spirit will show as we continue in Hebrews 
that the significance of Jesus Christ, the great high priest to this great salvation, is invaluable. I think right now the Holy Spirit's intention is to allow our eyes, the eyes of our heart, to see Jesus crowned with the honor of great high priest above all else in his plan. So to 11 words that we discovered in previous messages that are descriptive of universal salvation, 11 words, we must add a 12th term now, the kingdom of God. He basilea to theu, over which God is the great king, and this is the year of the great king, along with Jesus Christ, his son, they share the same throne. For as Revelation, that's the book, discloses the throne of the new universe to be occupied by God and the Lamb, in Revelation 22.1, it also shows that the river of crystal clear water of life that proceeds from the throne and that goes into the whole of the new universe is the Holy Spirit proceeding with the sanctifying water of the word. That's a wonderful picture of universal restoration. Revelation 21, 22 make that, verse 1. So everyone who continually believes the gospel enters into an experience of salvation, which in Hebrews is the experience of the eschatological rest and the Sabbath observance that the writer says still remains for the people of God in Hebrews 4.9. As Ernst Kosemann observed, he was one of the mentors even of Jürgen Moltmann, the gospel, he said, and I'm paraphrasing, is the power of salvation to those who believe, but not exclusively to those who believe. I would say that the gospel is understood and experienced as salvation in the power of God by those who believe. Those who don't believe are still the beneficiaries of such a great and universal salvation that Romans discloses to be a universal justification in Romans 5.18, rooted in the faithfulness of Christ. But those who don't believe or refuse to believe don't enter into a solidarity with those who begin to experience that salvation in a meaningful measure and to a discernible degree, even now, even now. Eventually, we will all, and by all, I mean all of humanity, all the nations over which God is already the king, whether people know it or not. Psalm 65, 2, Psalm 22, 27 to 31, which is the Septuagint, Psalm 21, 28 to 32. You'll see all this in print, and I urge you to look some of these verses up. All will come into the unity of the faith, says Ephesians 4, 13. All, everybody, ultimately will come into the unity of the faith, the universal solidarity of all humanity who will be completed or perfected together. Remember, Hebrews is ace totelos, all about completion. Hebrews 11.40. Eventually, all of humanity will be completed or perfected together. 
And that includes the idea that all will be united with those who believe. They will all believe. Everyone will eventually believe and come into the unity of faith in Hebrews Make that Ephesians 4.13. All will be united with those who believe and who enter into this eschatological rest. Why? For every eye will see him. We see him now, but every eye will see him, Yahweh, who was pierced. And when Jesus said, this is the will of God, that you would see the Son and seeing, believe and have eternal life. And so every eye seeing him and every person believing is inevitable. John 6.40, Revelation 1.7. Moreover, every knee will bow and every tongue will be full of praise in acknowledging the great king. This is actually the acknowledgement or confession of Jesus as Lord is actually a pledge of allegiance to the great king. That's what's being mentioned here in Isaiah 45.23, cited in Romans 14.11, Philippians 2, 5 through 11, and also alluded to in Psalm 22, 28, which is again the Septuagint of 21, 29. Eternal and universal salvation. Now I'm getting, you can just picture me writing in all caps here as I speak in the closing moments. Eternal and universal salvation is never in question for anyone or for anything in creation, for that matter. Because of the righteousness of God. His saving act in Jesus, and in the spirit of grace. The question has to do with those who refuse to believe now in this life, and who don't receive any benefit from hearing the gospel, and the real difference is the difference between them and those who have believed and do benefit by entering into the rest that God has by entering into a present experience of the kingdom of God and a dynamic anticipation of it coming in fullness when Jesus appears a second time. The kingdom of God is righteousness, God's saving action experienced. Peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's the experience. I say dynamic anticipation is part of that experience because an essential element of faith is that it is the substance of things hoped for already living in your soul, in your spirit. So this is the taffy that we don't let hit the floor in our beginning analogy. Hebrews 4.2 then, let's reiterate this and we'll move to a close. For good news has also been proclaimed to us, the gospel he's talking about, the power of God for salvation, the gospel where God reveals righteousness, his own righteousness. Good news has also been proclaimed to us as it was to them. That's the de desert generation. But they, the majority of the people in the desert, didn't profit from the message they heard, not uniting with those who heard by faith. For we who are believing, that's presently believing, are entering into rest, even now. For the desert generation, the gospel that they heard was the good news of a land flowing with milk and honey, as proclaimed by Yeshua 
Joshua, and Caleb. The vast majority of the generation who stood between the glorious divine saving acts of their deliverance from slavery in Egypt and a land of liberation and fulfillment of promise did not greet that good news with faith. They did not trust that God would take care of them in that land of liberation. They're like people today that would rather trust in the government to do things for them. They did not trust and receive the good news with faith, and therefore that crowd was not united with the crowd of witnesses throughout history who did believe, the heroes of faith. That majority of that generation didn't trust God. They didn't have the faith that's the substance of the hope for things and a future plan for them by the God of all grace, by God who is love, by God in whose hands are all of our times, in Psalm 31:15. Now we stand, you and I, we stand between the glorious past events of the death, burial, resurrection, and exaltation of Jesus and his coming again. We stand between those two events. With the final act that completes salvation for all of creation on the way, coming. So my question is, will we trust him to set a table for us in the wilderness? As Psalm 78, 19 says, in which we must still sojourn for a little while in this wilderness? Will we trust him to prepare a table before us in the presence of our enemies? In Psalm 23, 5, whom we must resist for a little while. And I speak of invisible enemies, not flesh and blood. Will we be united with the heroes of faith of Hebrews 11, who embraced promises until they died and sometimes didn't even see the fulfillment of them? Or will we die in this in-between no-man's land, having given up hope for the hope for things? So I did all this from a pastoral standpoint today to say that if you're beginning to falter and fall, I pray that the Lord will bring his arm around and save you from hitting the floor. The Lord's arm is not too short to save, nor is his ear too dull to hear. That's what Isaiah 59.1 says. Even his arm isn't too short to save and his ear not too dull to hear, even if our ears have become dull of hearing. And even if we're most certainly unable to save ourselves, and we sure are not able to do that, and even if we have forgotten our skill in the word of righteousness, I pray today that you retain it, that it comes back to you. The experience of righteousness is the experience of God's saving act in us and for us. Believing has to do not with being justified before God, but it has to do with understanding, 
Through faith we understand, for example, that the worlds were made of things that aren't seen. Hebrews 11.3. So faith has to do with experiencing God in us, willing and doing his own good pleasure. It has to do with the engrafted word of God that we receive, saving the soul in James 1.21. The experience of peace is the result of receiving the otherworldly peace that Jesus gives in John 14, 27, and that Jesus is in Ephesians 2, 14. It's the interior harmony that's a product of the resident Holy Spirit who dwells in us as God's Shekinah glory in God's temple. It's the inexplicable glorious joy, 1 Peter 1, 8, that anticipates the day when the universally observed Sabbath marries the universal inhabiting Shekinah glory of God. And when all the renewed universe is the habitation of God and the Lamb. But the last thing I want to say to you today is this. Even in short or long intervals of time, and there are certainly those, and I've experienced plenty of them myself. Even in short or even prolonged intervals of time, when the experience that I'm talking about is not at all to be had, faith clings to the promises that are all yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Even if we fall, we won't hit the floor. For the Lord holds our hand. And that's a verse you can pin on your fridge in Psalm 37, 24. Thank you, Father, that you have from your throne where you dispense your grace continually. You've dispensed timely grace. We've found mercy today in your word. We've been reinvigorated in hope. We found grace as a timely help today. And I pray that you'll use this message to bring timely help even to those of us who are beginning to falter or beginning to become weary, soul-weary, and even who have fallen, we pray that you'll pull us up, pull them up, before they hit the floor. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.